Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Shop Talk Show. We have two sponsors for you to mention at the top of the show. One is the Front End Summit. So go to frontendsummit.com and it will take you where you need to go. That's an Environments for Humans online conference that you can attend from anywhere in the world. Uh, It's a one-day conference talking about things like regression testing, like visual regression testing, CSS testing, grunt workflows, reusable user interfaces, guerrilla design tactics, and a front-end roundtable at the end. Use Coupon code twenty uh, shop talk for twenty percent off and one month. Who have all these learning courses that take you like all the way from learning a topic, um, uh, which is pretty darn awesome. We're going to tell you more about that later in the show, including a new pricing structure they have that uh, I think you're going to want to hear about. But for now, let's kick things off. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shop Talk Show, the world's best virtual reality podcast. If you just close your eyes and imagine people sitting around you talking, I'm Dave Rupert and with me is Chris Coyer. That's a good one, Dave. I'm going to start a little little tumbler of your little weird t- intros. All right. That's, I'm down. Dave's weird intros. Tumblr. Whatever. We have with us Mr. Addy Asmani. Thanks, Addy, for coming on the show. No problem. Yay! Um, I bet you all know Addy. He has done a incredible amount of awesome work for our community. I guess when I think, I don't know. There's there's so many things to ask you, and our and our listeners sent in some stuff. But when I think Addy, I, I think of like a couple of big major projects. Um, and I wonder if the, if you think of the same ones or if you think of different ones. But I think of like. Um, the, the MVC on the front end and you did this like you're like okay it's t- there's so many of these things it's time to start comparing how they are able to do things so you had this idea to uh, to have to do them like a to-do app in all the different ones so that you could look at what's the same end result but how do those things approach that was that uh, I don't know do you want to tell us about that one or <laughs> pick a different one yeah, sure. there, there are a ton of projects. I can talk about Studio MVC. So yeah, um, a few years ago, we we were um, sort of experiencing this this little bit of a revolution um, in the front end where people were starting to build more complex JavaScript apps and, and we were seeing an increasing number of like libraries come out. And um, I found myself trying to, to pick out, you know, JavaScript framework to use, but um, I don't start drinking that early. And it's, it's one of those, those hard... <laughs> It's one of those hard problems. And I saw that at that time, Backbone had this, uh, this really interesting to-do app. It was like this really, really simple thing um, that demonstrated how you'd go and construct something using, using models and views. And uh, as soon as we started seeing other frameworks pop up, I thought it'd be interesting to go and implement that same app um, in them and just like compare, compare the semantics, compare the syntax, see how they were handling templating, um, view management, nested views, all that stuff. And the project just kind of exploded from there. Um, it's we've, we've kept on adding more and more implementations over the years, and I think we've now got something like like forty six or forty seven apps. Wow! 
That's pretty wild. And it started with ones. What were what were like the first three? Backbone for sure, right? And oh, back then we had like we had Backbone, we had Sprout Core, which which came around before Ember. Um, we had JavaScript MVC and uh, a few others that, that that don't spring to mind, but there were there were a bunch at that time. Yeah, it's interesting, and because a to do app is just it's just a great example because it's it's like basic crud, right? It's like you you you, you input something and output something, and yeah. Anyway, I think that was just such a great a great kind of idea, and then you ultimately you have a book about Backbone, right? So did, were you kind of just uh, you you were comparing them, but you also kind of preferred the Backbone one, or is that not, is that unfair? Well, actually, at the time, so what um, the first thing that came out of To Do MVC was a book on JavaScript design patterns. Um, just because I saw so many different patterns being used um, in some of those frameworks, and it was interesting because everyone, so like we talk a lot about MVC, but everyone has different interpretations of, of how that, you know, how that's represented in JavaScript and on the front end. Uh, so I thought it'd be interesting to write a book about JavaScript patterns, and uh, the Backbone book came came right after that. Yeah, I I found it interesting to explore that API, like the set of APIs in Backbone, a little bit more depth, and that's that's where that book came out of. Yeah, nice. That, yeah, that's definitely the other thing. You know, one, another one of the many things I think of Addy when I think of is that is JavaScript design patterns. And so, what I mean, maybe if we, so you have a book on it. So if anybody wanted to learn, we can you know send them to that book for sure. But but like, what is a, what is a, a really simple design pattern? I mean. I don't know. I just think you know if we take this down to to its core, a, a, a one possible design pattern is just to like make an object and then have different properties on that object, and that can kind of represent your app. That would be like a really really simple design pattern, right? Isn't the idea to like I don't know, not have a bunch of globals and have um, imply some structure to your app? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to talk about patterns too much because it's easy to get into the weeds. But like the one pattern <laughs> everybody knows about is like the module pattern. And as soon as you go, you go and start talking about that station, you, you dive into like AMD and CommonJS and ESX modules and transpilers and and all of that yeah. stuff. Um, I think things are, are slowly getting better. They have been getting better there over the last couple of years. But um, so much opinion. Like everyone's got a lot of opinion about modules. But, um, but yeah, I think I think that the patterns are good. They help us. Like at least get behind a, a common idea of how something should be represented, and and they're still important. Yeah, that's a that's a nice sentiment. So maybe it, maybe it doesn't necessarily matter which one you use, or but using one at all is <laughs> is pretty pretty good a pretty good idea. I think so. Like with with to do MVC, like one of the one of the common questions that that we ended up getting off the back of that was, you know, what what framework should I use and that that comes up like almost every hour at this point. It's just kind of crazy, <laughs> but it's picking. You know, what framework should I use is the wrong question. Um, you know, for for that kind of for that kind of piece of your app for something so essential, like I always tell people to just try and evaluate the options themselves firsthand. Uh, in some cases, they might find that what they're doing is is so simple that a framework or a library might be overkill. But you know, maybe maybe they actually start thinking about what they're trying to build, and maybe it does maybe it does benefit from a framework. But um, I always tell people, you know, properly think out your application architecture in advance um, before just diving in and, and picking something that you might regret later on. Mm-hmm. We had a little discussion about uh, frameworks last week, and it was it, we just were kind of reminiscing about the the, the same 
problem. People like to just be told what to do. They want to ask what framework to use, and they want an answer. And and yeah, and the and, and the, the the answer is unfortunately pretty pretty sad when you give them the truth, which is you know do a bunch of work, do a bunch of thinking, do a bunch of consideration, and they're like, I want an answer. Well, one of the one of the other issues that like that come with frameworks is that sometimes people will they'll pick a framework, they'll go and they'll use it, and they'll do that without without necessarily understanding the abstraction that they're using. This happens a lot with like jQuery. It sometimes happens with with Angular and, and some popular libraries. But like they'll use something without understanding um, the abstraction. They'll run into performance roadblocks um, that they weren't expecting, and then they'll be like, you know, I what what happened? I don't know why this thing is slow. Um, and, you know, it, I, I just wish that people started to care a little bit more about the performance side of things and they were, and they were picking out their frameworks these days. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into some more modern stuff that you do. You're clearly uh, promoting performance a lot these days. We can get into that, but I thought maybe it would be nice to, I mean, we haven't even talked about where you work and what you do and stuff. We even had somebody write in, uh, Mr. V wrote in, what are your, you work at Google, what are your responsibilities at Google? Oh God! Um, <laughs> what would you say you do there, Addy? <laughs> I, I come in for the free food. Um, so uh, I work on the Chrome and Polymer teams at Google. Um, I care about like I care about performance. I care about like keeping developers productive and, and making sure they've got good rails for developing on the web. Um, specifically, I work um, in developer relations for Chrome. Um, I lead up a few engineering projects. So my team work on tools like uh, Google Web Starter Kit, Yeomin. Uh, we contribute a lot to Polymer. Uh, we work on Chrome releases. Uh, my team ship things like the uh, the new uh, Google I/O web app. We we work with DevTools stuff as well. So we we do like this a cornucopia of, of different things that try to make the web not so bad. Nice. I I think you do a pretty darn good job of being a, a developer evangelist. When you see a good Addy tweet, it will be like you always like make these really nice images that go along with the things that you're trying to present. So you like open up this, you know, it'll be an image attached to a tweet and it will have six different features in it that like are a screenshot that really get to like the core of what you're able to do now in a release and stuff. You have quite the the talent for that, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I I guess I'm I'm responsible for tweet driven development. Um, <laughs> I power uh, skills include tweets and PowerPoint and. No, but you're a good designer. You have, a, you know, your decks are nice looking. You can you can even draw and sketch. I've seen you do some pretty good work there. So do you, you know, it's it's you know multi talented dude. But th- that kind of thing helps, doesn't it? I mean, if you didn't have any design chops at all. Yeah. I think that's that's something I've become more acutely aware of being important um, in slide decks over the last couple of years. Uh, it, it it certainly helped having having people like Jake Archibald and Paul Lewis and Paul Irish and all those other people on on our teams who like set set such a high standard for the talks that we we try to to to, uh, to give and and have such nice looking decks themselves. So I I I try to um, go in that direction and make my stuff not look so so horrible. <laughs> Well, and don't sell yourself short. You, you're good at designing, and you also understand the like timeline profiling tools. So that's <laughs> that. That's a huge skill. It's a huge skill. I care about performance. It's like it's tough. Like asking a business to care about performance can be really unpredictable because uh, you never know exactly how they're going to say no, and so you've got to be like, 
armed with with data that about you know how how it's going to impact their engagement and stuff um, on on like the performance front something we've been we've been trying to to make a little bit easier lately is how how people think about performance when it comes to the uh, the sites and apps that they ship like in like I don't know if you guys know but like in, in previous years we've talked about um, you know ideally pages should uh, load in under a second and you know your transitions and animations should be hitting 60 frames a second. And that that kind of way of thinking about things we think is is good, but we've been trying to like improve some of our performance advice there. So recently, um, mm. we thought up this this new model um, we're calling Rail, and the idea behind Rail is that it breaks down into four things: so um, response, animation, idle, and load, um, or just liar in event, in reverse. Um, but, uh, so the idea there is like, you've got, so response is like your, you know, your user is interacting with an app causing state changes. It's like the, the finger down experience if you're on a mobile device. And we think that people should try to like get that down to about a hundred milliseconds. So that one is like the app, I'm not just seeing something, but I can touch it and it will re it will react to my touch a hundred milliseconds before that's ready. Exactly, 100 milliseconds. Um, and then you've got animation. And animation is interesting because we've gotten into this like idea that motion is possible on the web. Um, Material design tried to like encourage a little bit of this. It's not like the sole, sole thing responsible for it at all. But like I've seen a lot more people interested in motion design on the web. Um, and so hitting 60 frames a second there is really important. Um, we're now saying that you know ideally try to, to split up that animation into six millisecond chunks. So, like, if you're trying to animate something across the screen, just make sure that each of those steps um, are getting done in, in roughly six milliseconds. Um, if you want to make sure you're still hitting that, that 60 frames a second um, performance target. Uh, load, I've already said, like, try to hit everything in, in maybe a second. So that's the, the time from your application starting to it appearing to be ready for your users. Um, and then idle is, like, the last part is like the finger up experience. So your app being in a stable state, waiting for the user to go and, and just like interact with it. Mm, that one's unusual. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, well, it's like, it's the idea is that like a user might be interacting with your application more than once. You know, maybe maybe you've got um, an application where someone can drag something around on the screen or uh, maybe it's a mobile game or something like that. Um, and those are places where, like, the idle time um, are, are equally as response as uh, as important as a response time. So, yeah, those are those are things that that could be interesting for someone to think about. I guess they are indeed, and I like that you are not afraid to just throw numbers on them. In a similar vein of the. Um, the, the thing about frameworks, how people just want to be told what framework to use. Well, we might stay away from that in that situation. Throwing numbers on performance maybe does have benefit. Because if, if we just were out there being like, you should make your website faster, people would be like, yeah, I agree. But then they don't have any particular goals involved. But when, when Google tells you how fast your website should be, maybe it will make a bigger difference. You know, people strive for those numbers. Well, I, I hope that people will will try to strive for some of these numbers. Like, I I'm a big believer um, in performance budgets, and I think that uh, having performance budgets for like your UX is is as equally important as just making sure that you've got good load time. So, yeah, I hope people look at Rail, and you know, some of the people that have been like really heavily involved in that stuff have been like Paul Lewis and Paul Irish. They've got a, a lot more material coming out about Rail over the next couple of months. So, I'd suggest people check that out when it's when it's up there. 
Nice. And some of this, I, I was looking at a slide right in your your slides for the, the DevTools State of the Union 2015, which is up on Speaker Deck. We'll throw that in the, the show notes, but it, it definitely has some information about this in it. Uh, v has a second part of the question. He's asking about your responsibilities at Google. He also asks, what's the best way for someone to pursue a similar career at Google or elsewhere? They want to, V wants to be the next Addy. How did you become Addy? Um, through a series of unfortunate events, I would never want to be an Addy. Um, so I guess, so the, you're, su- you're such an Addy. Oh. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Go ahead. What I am is ADD and the Y is just there to make it a complete name really. But, um, the way, the way I think about it is like, I, I'm, I'm interested in many things, but the thing that I'm, I'm interested in the most is trying to move the web forward. Um, in some way. So if people are interested in doing that and they're, you know, they're, they're up for trying to do that through contributing to open source projects, contributing to standards, just trying to make it, you know, a little bit easier for other developers to go and get started on the web. Um, all of those things help out a lot, actually. Um, and I would just say, you know, try to put your passion, if, if that's something you're passionate about, try to invest your time there and maybe you too can be ADD like me someday. <laughs> I'm curious what it, um, I bet what they, you know, like what is it about what you do precisely that V is interested in, I wonder. I wonder if it's the, you know, the traveling or if it's the, like, you know, people care about what you say or if they want to, if they really care about the web and are, you know, have some things to say about that. There's different parts of, I'm sure, what you do that is, is appealing to different people, different aspects of it, so. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing more about like what what specific facet is is of interest to people. I'd also say that I I, I generally give terrible advice. You should, you should never listen to me. <laughs> I on on the way to like record this, I I think I invented four new karate moves trying to get our automated like paper towel dispenser to work. So I'm not not someone you should listen to. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. This is an evocative statement. Uh, uh, let me do a sponsor real quick before we get into the Q&A larger portion of the show. One of them is One Month. So their URL is onemonth.com, which is a pretty awesome URL. But they're this, there's this like learning company on the web uh, that have these courses where you go from like zero to knowing about that thing at the end. So they're kind of known for their Ruby on Rails course, which is good. But they have tons of courses. They have an iOS development with Swift. They have a Python course, an HTML and CSS course, a content marketing course. All this stuff, and 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 the idea is there's like a you know you have a real person tutor and you work your way through it throughout the month and then at the end you you learn a bunch and I've heard nothing but just amazing things about this like these are really well considered courses you know uh, 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 it's nice to have access to to large libraries and be able to jump in and out of different things and have quick reference but this is like I want to be focused and learn on one thing the URL then is one month.com slash shop talk which gets you 25% signing out for any of their courses and this is a big deal they just changed their pricing structure this week so the idea was that it was it's $99 a month for access to all of them so if you super want to level up for a very low amount of money you can 
take all their courses and learn it. But it's like, let's say you just want one of the courses, you're just going to, you know, you'd have less time, and you're just going to pop in for 15, 30 minutes a night and level up over the course of your month. That's half the price, $49 a month. And then using the Shop Talk Show discount code, it's $37. So it's kind of like you can try out these like incredibly well put together courses for very little money. So the URL again, it's onemonth.com slash shop talk. We'll put that in the show notes. What if you could change your life in one month? All right, let's do some more. All right, let's get into the meat and taters here. The shop talk show. Luke writes in, hey guys, love the show. I was wondering at what point uh, you make the trade-off between additional bytes of file size versus an extra HTTP request. Basically, at what point does an extra HTTP request become worthwhile? 5 kilobytes, 10 kilobytes, 50 kilobytes? I know there's no hard and fast rule. Just wondering if you had a personal rule of thumb. So let's set up a scenario, I guess, because this is a little abstract, right? Let's say you have a 50 kilobyte script and you need another 50 kilobyte script, is it better to load a 100 kilobyte script or two 50 kilobyte scripts? Is that fair? So like these days, especially on mobile, it's super important to get first paint right. And like server-side rendering comes into that for sure. Um, trying to make sure that your initial like bundle, your load of stuff that you're shipping down to your users is as small as possible is super important. Um, what I generally try to do these days is make sure that, that bundle is small and the stuff that's in it is essential um, for that first run experience. Um, if you're going to end up like bundling a lot of stuff, so maybe maybe 100 kilobytes doesn't sound like a lot to some people. If if we expanded that out to a little bit more, like let's say let's say we're talking about a super giant app, like, I don't know, a meg of, of script or something. If we were talking about something like that, you then have to make the trade-off between, you know, do I... Do I first of all load all this stuff up um, and then make sure that the the next run experience is a little bit faster because it's cached, or do I split that up into a few different bundles? Um, the way I think about it is, it's good to make sure that like that bundle is split up um, as long as you can ensure that the user is getting sufficient value from from that that thinner bundle that you're going to give them up front. These days, I also tend to think about service worker and like how much you can you can get more control over the caching experience so that um, you don't you don't perhaps worry as much um, about about the rest of the stuff you're shipping down the line because the refresh experience like a person gonna you know going to use the app multiple times after is going to be so much faster um, but I guess this type of question tends to come down to what your application's doing you know what your site's doing I don't think there's that there's any hard and fast rules that you could apply to it that's interesting so what would be the benefit of ever splitting it up? I mean, I can't, is it, was, was the idea behind this, the idea that parallel requests come down faster than single requests. So occasionally it is smart to break up a file, but that's kind of antiquated advice or I don't. So I was, um, I, I, what I was thinking of was a site, I guess, where you don't necessarily have all the scripts um, for a single page in, in, in the same bundle. Um, like you might have multiple scripts that are used on different pages in different contexts. And in those scenarios, maybe it does make right, sense right. to not have everything in the same bundle. Yeah, I can see that. So the like, you know, the home page and a sub page and the home page loads the a 50k script and a sub page loads a different 50k script. It's probably maybe it's better not to squish them together because the home page doesn't need that sub page thing, but sometimes it does and <laughs> if if the user ended up going to the sub page, then it's already cached. So the sub page is faster. Yeah. 
Exactly. And the same, the same concept can, can quite easily be applied to apps. So if you took a look at something like, let's say, Gmail. Um, in Gmail, you've got, you've got Hangouts, you've got like contacts, views, and, and all sorts of other uh, optional widgets, we can call them. Um, now, for the, for the first load experience, they don't necessarily need to load in all of that stuff. They could um, dynamically pull that stuff in when they know that the users indicated an interest in using that part of the UI. Um, so there, there are multiple ways that this problem can be tackled. Um, I try to think of like the thinnest bundle of stuff you can ship down to, to ensure your, your first render experience is, is as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. From a CSS perspective, I was, uh, there was a little like trend last year-ish or maybe around the turn of the year this year where people were writing about the CSS at, you know, there's CSS at GitHub and the, and people were saying like, oh, th- these are all the tools we use to write CSS and here's some, you know, basic data about, about you know, how many selectors we have and how big it is. And, so, and it, was, it was a fun little trend. I, I hopped on it, you know, I was, it, was, it, was, it was interesting to see how people did it. And it was related to this in that I found that a lot of people, to my surprise, are just smashing it all together, CSS-wise. I'm, I don't think that's a trend that's happening in JavaScript as much, but CSS, you know, like for example, GitHub, the, all the CSS for the entire site is, it's actually in two files only because of the IE selector limit, but otherwise it would be in one file. They just, every bit of CSS found every page of the entire site is smashed together. So it's just all cached. Wherever you go on the site, they get it. And I, I was just kind of surprised to find out how many people are doing it that way. That maybe it's because CSS is just a, a smaller part of the overall bundle these days, or, or it's just too hard to break it up or what. But it's kind of a trend, I think. I think CS, so CSS is really interesting when it comes to splitting up because you can end up in a situation where like a common thing, uh, you know, uh, agencies do these days is like use a style guide of some sort. Maybe they'll have a collection of components. They know they're going to be you know, CSS components and styles, but they know are going to be pretty commonly used across the site. And they've weighed the pros and cons of splitting something like that up. And as it turns out, you know, the likelihood of someone needing most of the bundle um, is pretty high. And so in that type of scenario, shipping, shipping, you know, the entire CSS bundle down might make sense for them. Um, but it's it's incredibly like dependent on on, on your individual use case and, and what you're trying to do. Like I'd say that while while something like that is is definitely true of agencies, you can you can run into a lot of cases these days where like someone prototyping something will end up you know perhaps choosing something like Bootstrap and then they'll customize it a little bit. They'll they'll forget at the very end of the day that they're using all of Bootstrap and and they'll end up in the scenario where like. They're shipping 128k of, of CSS down the line, where maybe they're only using a small chunk of it. Um, so yeah, it's it's nuanced. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Dave? No, no, oh, right. <laughs> I'm good. I think I think I've this critical CSS stuff seems to really. Once once you're on that train, you're kind of like I don't care what my second file size is, like my CSS file, because I've got I the page is rendered, so it can take however long it needs to to fully render. That's kind of does that make sense? Like if you did because your, that's going to be generally fast anyway. I mean, it can't take ten seconds to do that, but it won't. So it, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. That's that's my hope is that my my I don't care really what my full CSS concatenated CSS file sizes uh, when I'm lazy loading it. That's that's just me. And same with JavaScript. If I'm like cutting mustard um, to load in JavaScript or whatever, I kind of care less how big it is just 
But the selector limit is something to think about. I hadn't really considered that, mm-hmm. and I'm probably hitting it. So <laughs> anyway, uh, are you using are you using like critical CSS in, in your sites at the moment? Oh yeah, and it is it is the hot jam. I mean, you have to. It, it's it's a struggle and a struggle for designers. I think especially is you have to kind of let go of this. The first renders, the first impression is going to be great. Because you, you kind of have to have like this, no, the first impression is usable like, and it's quick and it's in 500 milliseconds. And then you progressively like get it better. It's like the appetizer coming out before your meal. You're, you're glad it came out before you didn't have to wait six hours for both of them to show up together. Um, so that's – that. If we can embrace progressive rendering, I think it's great. And you start noticing, once you're in that world, you really start noticing sites that waited to bundle everything together. I I know Bustle is working. They're like that Ember app um, that everyone talks about. And I know they're working on all the fast boot stuff. But you really notice, like... On especially on I browse on an iPad Mini every night, and I notice sites that didn't do the progressive rendering, and you're just waiting forever. You just you're like, cool, all right, I can see them loading the style sheet now. I see, you know, you just you feel every kilobyte that's coming down. Uh, has that been your experience, Addy? You probably have really good Google internet all the time. I, I have I have okay internet. Well, I have I have decent internet um, until I get to any conference, any hotel, or I go into like I don't know the subway, um, and that's ah. that's when you start to to realize how many how much of the web is not is not that optimized for performance. Um, but like I I, I try to um, apply the ideas of like inline uh, inlining your critical CSS where I can. Um, like your 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 listeners probably know about like the idea behind critical CSS, but it's like where you're trying to, to fit in the code required for rendering the top portion of a given page with the first response from the server, which is usually around like 14 kilobytes of compressed code, which is really tricky sometimes because um, you might have um, like really detailed styles for the top part of your page and you need to realize, like figure out, okay, well, how much of the, the skeleton of my page can I ship down in that 14 kilobytes? Um, but luckily I think like, at the moment, we seem to have a good amount of tooling to help people automate this problem, whereas in like recent years, it was a little bit trickier. You had to do a lot of it manually. Um, I know that I've got um, a tool I wrote called Critical that tries to help with this. Uh, Filament Group have got some great tools around this as well, and there's also Penthouse. Um, are, you, are you using tools for your inline stuff at the moment, or is this like hand-rolled? Um, I have used tool. I'm kind of doing both. I, I used um, Penthouse on my site and it's good and it goes and requests things. And then I save out a little partial that I then include like a PHP include, but it's a Jekyll include. Um, But I'm also interested in the idea of like, maybe you structure your SAS file. um, You know, your SAS file is your, your grid type. um, You was sorry, grid type list of posts, footer and maybe your critical CSS is just grid type. That's it. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm, I'm interested in that idea. Like could, could you get like just use SAS partialing to kind of render out your whole site um, or, or at least render, render your critical CSS. Cause then it's just a matter of like 
for testing, it's just setting that file as your default um, and then commenting out files until it looks fine, if that makes sense. Like you just, you just comment things out and you're like on the table of contents. So I'm interested in that as a, I as don't a know. I, I'm more attracted to the tooling way. Like can, it can't this, can it run in phantom or something and have something decide what's more important to me? I, I, at first I was more attracted to the SAS way. Like, can I mark certain chunks of the CSS as I write it as being critical? But then I'm like, who am I to know what's critical and what's not, you know, can a computer decide? The, the approach to critical CSS gets like it gets really interesting as soon as you think about it in terms of like um, breakpoints and how this applies to like your layout on different screen resolutions and different types of devices. Because what is critical CSS and what's uh, above the fold on one device may not stay true for others. And you may end up like generating the critical CSS with tooling for your desktop view. But, um, you know, your, your breakpoints might adjust how your page looks um, on a mobile phone so that it looks a little bit differently. So um, it's, it's hard to know if, if um, the same CSS is going to apply. Uh, now, tools can help us a little bit. I think that recently, um, you know, that we've been looking um, at, in, in critical at, at better handling the responsive use cases. And I think Filament's been doing this as well. But I, I think that ultimately it's going to come down to a combination of things. It'll probably be like, Ultimately, you'll rely on tooling to, to help you get you know, past the finishing line, and maybe you'll be able to control a little bit of that experience better using, using SAS and how you structure your, your styles. Yeah. I, I did notice when I used Penthouse to grab my critical CSS, I had to go in and kind of massage it and strip out like font faces and stuff that I didn't want loading because um, that was slowing me down. But... Uh, I think that's all been worked on, so I think that's probably fixed now. But it, it's kind of you can set it and go, but then you like you're like, oh wait, is this actually better? I, that's that's something I've noticed too. Like if you request a background sprite, then you're now it's now you blocked everything, kind of. So um, yeah. All right, should we go? I'm gonna, to, I'm gonna do a, a, requ- uh, a related question. question. Okay, good. Good. Leon Gaben writes in. My name is Leon. I'm a longtime listener, huge fan, as well as the uh, uh, as well as a front end developer for a startup in Dallas. I will be rebuilding our website and app dashboard soon, and instead of having a desktop version and a mobile version, I'm going to have one version which will support both. I'd like to use a different set of JavaScript files for the smallest, the mobile version, versus the desktop size, or really anything other than the mobile size, you know, 320 and bigger. Uh, I've, I've seen examples of people using JavaScript to import tags, but how would you guys go about this? So, you know, it's, okay, mobile version, desktop version, but he wants to load different JavaScript depending on, you know, the browser window width. So what's the what's the tactic these days for that? I've I've seen it done both ways. Like um, in I guess like years and years ago when when we when we used to try applying the same thing, we do it on the server side where like you build a, a multi view app um, and you'd have a view for mobile and a view for desktop and tablet, um, and then you'd be able to define okay, well in my tablet view I'm going to pull down my tablet.js bundle of scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, phone will pull down the phone bundle. Um, and that that approach to doing things is still still a little bit valid, um, 
like other people end up trying to do this in script, which means that, okay, well, you've got to wait for your page to load or provide other signals to you that, you know, it's, it's got a particular viewport size or it's a particular type of device. And then you make the decision about what type of scripts to go and import. But um, that, that can get tricky because you might need scripts to, to be available and imported in um, early on in the page lifecycle. So there, there are trade-offs to both approaches. Um, and it, it really depends on, on like how much, how much script is necessary for your page, uh, what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Isn't the idea though, that the server doesn't know how wide your browser window is unless there's like a cookie or something that can tell it. Um, so at what, how do you make a server side distinction like that without UA sniffing or, or do you just use UA sniffing? Unfortunately, most of the implementations I've seen that do use a server-side solution still UA sniff to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, if you if you weren't going to UA sniff, you could just you know th there's a JavaScript there's a global JavaScript variable for your window. You know, it's just window dot outer width or something like that, which you could just test. You know, you could go if window outer width is bigger than three twenty, then you know. Ajax for a for a new script. I mean, that, that's certainly a, a way you could do it. I I don't know what the the ups and downs for your particular scenario is, Leon, but I guess that's generally called mustard cutting. Although mustard cutting is usually applied to like, does the browser support query selector all and stuff like that. But I think I think it's anything. I think it's any kind of front end capability testing could be called a mustard cut. I don't know, that's like just a feature me. test. I, I feel like everything used to be feature test, modernizer, 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 do a feature test, and then load things in. Uh, I don't really do that that often. <laughs> um, usually when I'm trying to do something different on desktop, I'll, I'll send mobile and desktop the same payload uh, and just wrap it in an if match media like mm -hmm. like statement. Um Again, it's if I'm lazy loading my JavaScript and not depending on that rendering the page, I'm super less concerned about the file size, even for mobile. Um, even though it, it'll end up on mobile way later, so that's me though. I always I'm, found Match Media a little not as useful as you'd want it to be because generally the media query that you send it is width based, which you can just do anyway without that. Yeah, yeah, like with scroll bars and stuff. Browsers are weird, so like based oh, it's on more, it's more consistent to use the media query version. That's in, cool. In theory, if the browser fired the match media or fired the media query, it would fire the the match media as well. If the CSS is matching the media, so is the JavaScript. That's a that's a theory, and you may have a fourteen pixel discrepancy if you have a sidebar on Firefox and on different versions of the operating system and on different platforms. Ugh. Sidebars. I kind of wanted to go through this and I, you know, like this is like last chance to be super critical about this little idea, but I just kind of worked on it um, over the weekend or earlier this week and I called it kind of server side mustard cutting and I know not everybody's going to like it or whatever, but it, I happen to be using it right now and I kind of like it. So I just kind of want to describe it and then you can yell at me or whatever. But the the idea is I'm in the same position as Leon, and I want to load different stuff 
uh, CSS, JavaScript, but and HTML too, but I want to base it on how wide the window is. I want to have a mobile version and a desktop version, and I know you might even hate those words even, but that's the idea. I have a small screen version and a large screen version. But I, it's not just scripts and JavaScript or, or CSS and JavaScript, because I think those you can just test the window with an Ajax and in and generally be okay. But if you need a different document also, you want a totally different document, and that document has different scripts in JavaScript because you just need different stuff. You want to lay things out differently, and it's just better to do that when you have HTML control too. You kind of need the server to know how large, how wide your screen is, or do any kind of mustard cut at all. You know, if you want to have five things a part of your mustard cut to make this choice, fine. But the idea is you assume that a cookie is available that has all that information in it. If it isn't available, the very first thing you do in a very, very small HTML document is is do those tests and set that cookie. And then it, and then halt the page, window.stop, and then, and then refresh it, and then that cookie is probably there. And there's code all in here to deal with the situations where cookies are blocked and all that kind of stuff. There's some logical caveat. But then it, that happens fairly fast because it's way up the page and it stops the page from loading anything else and stuff. And then when you refresh, that's available, then you can use the cookie to do server-side stuff if you want. And I think it works pretty well. It's what we do on CodePen or whatever. So I kind of wanted to put it out there. I have a GitHub repo for it. And you know, there's some ups and downs with it, but I... I just feel like I, I never see anybody do this, and it doesn't seem to be that bad to me. So, Chris, can I write you a little jQuery yeah. plugin for your site where, like, yep. Web Standards Southern Gentleman pops out <laughs> at the bottom of the page and go, "I would never <laughs> using a cookie to decide things. A Cookies cookie. are for eating. A cookie to determine a mobile device. Why well, never? All right, no, F- I'm just. You're fine. You're fine. Okay. You're fine. You're you're fine. You're perfect. Next question. We're on number three, I think, here. Okay. Uh, here. Ooh, uh, Devin is very angry. I am so frustrated with the current state of JavaScript. I feel like there are so many libraries and tools that uh, the language is getting oversaturated. Because of this oversaturation, there are now conflicting best practices. For example, if we want to use Require.js and concatenate all of our libraries together, then we can't use a CDN fallback for those libraries. So uh, do we do AMD or CDN? Hmm, this is a bit of a hot drama. <laughs> so many tools, what do you do, Addy? Oh, so many tools, what do you do? I feel like this is this is like a, a really super common trend that's been building up in this community over the last like couple of years. Where like not not only are there a saturation of libraries and, and frameworks and approaches and best practices, like it takes people so long to just get started these days. You've got to like download the internet before you can get started. Um, so the question was AMD versus CDN, right? Yeah. Is it true that you absolutely can't use a CDN if you use something like AMD? That seems crazy. No, that's that. I think, I think that it's possible that the, the reader isn't, isn't using build tools correctly there. So if you're using AMD, you'd probably go and end up using, um, RJS to to actually start out getting a a built bundle of your scripts, um, that you'd use in your app. Um, or you'd use like a, like something like Almond, um, but like the there there's nothing that should stop you from from using AMD plus a CDN. I'd be I, curious. I read it as something like CDN JS or, or or Google Ajax libraries or something. You know, like 
like hosted libraries. Oh, is that the case? Like, oh, I see. This is that does confuse people sometimes. Generally, when I think CDN, I think your CDN that you configure and deal with the DNS for and stuff. But certainly, things that like CDNJS kind of confuse the issue. They assume if you're loading your JavaScript from a CDN, you're loading it from something like that, like Google's library of CDNs, which is uh, I feel like uh, that confuses the issue of CDNs. Mm. Okay, so you you can. So I guess to answer Devin's question, you can require something stitch up together in AMD deal, deploy it to your own personal CDN, um, and then it goes across the whole globe. Akamai Fire. That should work fine. Like, I'm not sure if if um, if the question was more around whether or not people should use CDNs. And what I'll say about any best practice is, you know, don't don't necessarily take it at face value. A lot of the times, like people will see a performance best practice and like, oh yeah, I'm going to follow this forever. Um, that best practice may not still apply like five years from now. So it's important to make sure that you're profiling and actually understanding what your your true bottlenecks are in your in your site or your app, um, and you're looking at the data in you know you know in your your specific use case rather than just like taking this general advice and, and perhaps uh, thinking that it's going to fix everything. That's a moment of silence. For the- <laughs> uh, let me do the Front End Summit sponsor really quick. The URL for that is frontendsummit.com. It is a full day lined up of awesome speakers, great topics coming up here June 2nd. You can attend it from anywhere in the world because it's an online conference of which if you go, you get all the recordings for it too. So you'll be able to kind of log into that system and relive the day uh, as much as you want, which is a really cool thing. But it does happen live. The chat room is live. You can participate live. You see the speakers. They're talking to you. It's just like a real conference, only you're in your comfortable chair. Pretty cool. Talks on, uh, you know, like I was saying at the top of the show, visual regression, which is pretty cool. It's kind of a new world, this idea of how do I do CSS testing? Can I compare screenshots of my site to make sure I didn't screw anything up and get a warning if I do. That's kind of new stuff in the land of CSS. Pretty interesting. A lot of stuff about Grunt, reusable user interfaces, and then uh, Sparkbox is going to do a front-end roundtable at the end, which is pretty cool. So like, come with your hard-hitting questions to there. Samantha Warren, Dave Olson, Micah Godbull, all lots of people speaking at it. Get 20% off with the coupon code shop talk. So in addition to it being very affordable, it's also cheaper than that even because it's that. So front end, you know, that's what we like to talk about here on the shop talk show. Let's do another one. I, we have a question from Daniel Spear. I've recently begun diving into the mean stack so far. I have uh, really enjoyed it coming from a lamp stack background. It's Pretty big, um, huge mindset shift. But the idea of running a server on JavaScript is both terrifying and too intriguing to pass up. I'm wondering what opinions you guys have on a mean stack, if any at all. We'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, Addy, you're probably on the mean stacks. Yeah, I'm a mean guy. Um, So (laughs) I... We picked that up. No, go ahead. Uh, so I've I've played around with mean stacks in the past. Um, there, it's it's fun getting to like stay in JavaScript for like the entire lifecycle of your app and and both the like the server side and front end side of things. Um, I enjoy it quite a lot, and uh, I know that we've definitely had some some nice evolution of the the tooling in Yemen to to support the the mean community. 
Um, so I've I, I enjoy using it. Um, I haven't used it in a while, like mostly because I've like shifted over from from using things like um, Angular and Ember to, to using Polymer. But the, the mean stack's otherwise pretty cool. It totally depends on like whether whether or not you're you're happy working in JavaScript all the time, or you find that you're equally proficient using other backend languages or not. So if we could define it, mean is is the M is Mongo, which is no SQL, but it also kind of means like JSON, right? Can't you like chuck JSON in something like that a little easier? So that's the JavaScripty part, I guess. Yeah, you got you got uh, Express, which is like a, it's a it's a Node framework for um, building like multi-page and hybrid apps. Uh, then you've got Angular, I think, and then you've got Node. So all of those things are JavaScript related, and thus that's thus the appeal for uh, Mr. Daniel. Uh, it, it does seem kind of neat. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm such a noob at stuff like this kind of it. I always thought Node was so weird, and that it's like it's not it's 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 JavaScript, but it's just the syntax of JavaScript, right? It, you still like the it doesn't have like DOM stuff in it, right? Because that's irrelevant on the server. <laughs> it's just it's just that you structure you write functions and objects and stuff. That's what's similar about it, right? Yeah, it's just it's just working with a, a similar syntax. I I so I used Yeoman, okay. This is full 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 synergy here. I used Yeoman to download like a mean generator, uh, like like a mean app generator, and uh, and it boom like it basically built Medium on my computer in like two minutes. It's it's like a multi user blog with authentication where people can like post blogs, posts, and stuff like that. It was sick and crazy how quick like this this kind of tooling all happened um i kind of like went forward with it and was like i'm just going to play around with this little generator and i noticed when i got into uh, i maybe i'm different now but the angular stuff was kind of tripping me up and it just seemed kind of unnecessary for what i wanted to do at that moment um so it's kind of like i'm just going to rip out angular for right now uh and, and just do uh, a men stack is that what it would be okay i was going to do a men stack and uh i it was not it was really hard to rip out angular and, and i don't know if that's everybody's experience but it seems like angular has a kind of a high buy-in is it do you find that addy I think that so I'll I'll comment in in a broader context. I think that any opinionated stack um, tends to be built in a way where uh, if you're if you're gonna you know follow their rails and their recommendations, and in some cases they're gonna have to to build things in a way where like you've got dependencies that are a little bit coupled. And I guess in in the mean stack case, Angular is is uh, is one of those things. Um, I don't like I don't as I mentioned I don't heavily use Angular, but um, I believe that. There's nothing stopping one like if uh, outside of this generator, there's there should be nothing stopping one from like ripping Angular out of there and and substituting it for for something else like like React or Ember. Okay, okay. I just i I wondered if I was like just in super noob mode or if that's kind of everybody's experience. Um, but yeah, it just I don't know it. I I kind of dream of this like seamless architecture where I install Fangular. We're calling it Fangular. And it automatically makes my app rich, but um, it's a, it's a, seems like a lot of work to to 
get things, I don't know, fully Ajaxy. Um Ooh. I don't know. Is that am I talking big? Am I talking I'm being anti JavaScript right now. I apologize, everybody. Gosh, Dave. Gosh. <laughs> Mr. Edgar Pino writes in, as a front-end and back-end developer, I often find myself Googling for pretty much anything, from CSS to PHP. For example, today I searched for SAS parent selectors and equal height columns in CSS. I often think that I'm really just good at searching the web and not so much at development. (laughs) Am I overreacting, or do other developers run into this situation <laughs> if it makes if it makes that person feel any better, I I almost always have to Google um, flexbox stuff. Mm. I I I am terrible at remembering flexbox syntax and all the different ways that you can configure it. Um, and I, I often either need to use a, a cheat file or or Google that stuff. So I definitely don't think that person is alone. <laughs> I probably Google equal height columns in CSS or some variant of that every day. Probably every day. <laughs> and I always end up with the same two CSS tricks articles. Um, I don't know. Which is no, weird. No, of course not, Edgar. Everybody does that and everybody will admit to it. We all just did here. Of course, I Google things all the time. In fact, copying and pasting is largely our job, I think. I can't even remember a for loop in whatever language I'm in. I just I I forget, and it's just easier to copy and paste sometimes, or I have little snippets that auto expand into them or something. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make you any worse. What makes you good or not is knowing that you need a for loop right now, and knowing that there's alternatives to for loops, and knowing the the structure behind it. It's not the syntax so much that matters, or like trivial little. It's knowing that that your site right now would benefit from having equal height columns right here, having the good taste to know that that's the case, so that. That's what you're going to look for to do to solve. It's trivial how you implement it. It's important that you want to and care to. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always find it funny when they do code interviews, whiteboard code interviews, and they're like, make this jQuery or whatever, make this thing in JavaScript. It's like, dude, I can't write 10 lines of JavaScript without Googling twice. So I, I wouldn't worry about it, Edgar. I think you're good. I think you're good at JavaScript if you're good at Googling or CSS or PHP. So, yep. Can I post something in chat and then and then we'll, we can talk about it? Okay. And then, yep. It's going to go into the Skype chat and I'll put it into the, the group chat too. And I'll put it in the show notes, of course, too. God, how do you do a chat? I thought I had this all You hit the out. little bubble in this corner. With oh, yeah. This. Somebody wrote in with this question. Mr. Sean Scoob writes in, can you explain what the tiniest yet most powerful JavaScript utility ever is about? And it's literally one line of JavaScript. And we can look at it. And I'll try to describe what it is on the radio, even though that's awful. But it says <laughs> function. And the function is named caller of. And it takes one uh, thing, C. And in it, it says use strict... And then it says return c.call.bind c, the, the thing that was passed in. So why is that the most powerful JavaScript utility ever? Can we reason it out? <laughs> or I'm is gonna, that the worst idea ever for the I'm radio? I'm going to defer to Addy. Would you ever use this? Is this the best? Is, is this the best? Um, I would 
So I'm I'm one of those. I, I don't know if you guys saw it. Like uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Jed Schmidt put together this project called uh, 140 Bytes. Okay. I, the idea there was that like you try to cram in um, in 140 bytes, like in a tweet, um, as much interesting JavaScript logic as you can. And like the stuff that came into that project, and I, I try to hack on that stuff every couple of months. But like we try like create things like CSS debugger utilities and MIDI synthesizers and games and all sorts of crazy things in 140 bytes. Like I, I am into that stuff. And I think, which they call golf for some reason, code golfing. Yeah. yeah. I think the term came from, from um, some other programming communities, but I'm, I'm definitely all over that stuff. Um, this, I, yeah, no, no. Okay. All right. I don't, I don't get it. I don't even know why you'd use it at all. I, I, is it just a, it, it's a, I don't know what it does. Is it it's like a loop for has own property? Is that kind of what it's, or it's trying to call oh, itself or call it? I don't get it. I'm not there. I'm not there either. I can't figure it out. So there's three of us here that all write JavaScript for a living, Sean, and we don't, we can't figure it out. So. It's probably cool or something, but we failed. Sorry, Sean. Sorry. Let's do another one. <laughs> I'm glad we all brought it up and, and we're wondering. Maybe the chat room's got it figured out. All right. The, the very last one is from Haynes Schultzman, who writes in, this was a little bit a while ago when the New York Times redesigned their site. They said the New York Times is, is describing some of the technology they used for their redesign, uh, including a paragraph about responsive breakpoints called a smarter layout. They decided to go for CSS classes set via JavaScript to switch the layout. So kind of like Modernizer is taking care of media queries kind of way. So uh, I'm biased about their approach, but it would be great to get your opinion and feedback on the idea. So here's the idea. Instead of using like uh, media queries in your CSS to change the layout around, you just have classes called like .mobile or, who, or whatever, however you want to name them and then make JavaScript switch the classes on like a high up element in the HTML, and then you use those classes to change the layout. That's what they they kind of went with instead. So, what do we think about that? Or is there considerations there? Like, always is doesn't that like invalidate layout for like larger areas, and that's bad news? I wonder if Eddie has any insight into. So the idea is that they're trying instead of instead of using MIDI queries, they are just trying to change layout by switching CSS classes. I mean, I guess they'd be HTML classes, right? But yeah, but yeah, or whatever, just a class name on an HTML element. Well, you're going to end up computing styles for for changes to layout um, either way. I guess I guess where I'm interested in is um, is whether this is something they're doing to to bring in different views or change the UI, or whether um, this is something that they're just triggering when someone you know resizes the the viewport. Is there is there a little bit more context given around it? Yeah, I can I can bring up the tab. I mean, it, it seemed weird to me. It's like, oh, then you're going to have to bind to window.resize at some point. So there's some like cost to doing that. That seems weird. And it's it's like, how how far back are you trying to go in your design? Is the reasoning for it, I wonder, if uh, they're trying to support browsers that don't have media query support? I mean, I guess that would be a kind of legit way to do it. But yeah, I mean, yes. I can post... 
Oh, I like I know what this is talking about. I don't know if they're moving away from this, but uh, this and I apologize if this is turning into like a what grinds my gears episode of Shop Talk. But again, I browse on my little iPad uh, and I can see the layout happen over and over and over. Like it'll paint and they'll disappear and they'll paint and they'll shuffle around and they'll paint and they'll shuffle around and then then it's there. Um, It's like they do like a they like try out layouts until they fit it perfectly. Or if an image loads in late or they decide they can fit an image, then they'll like try to lazy load that image in. And I notice, so I don't know. I I've like, I, it's cool. And there's a JS jabber, um, with the, the, the New York times guys. Um, it, it's a cool technology, but I just, I I've noticed it doesn't quite like, it doesn't I'm always a little nervous too when I hear people that said when I hear people that are like, "Oh, we're taking web layout into our own hands." <laughs> you know, I'm always like, Ooh. "Yeah, yeah." I you should listen to that JS Jabber. It's cool, like the problems they're trying to solve. Because I mean, New York Times is kind of a big deal, and like not every news page should look the same. Um, so that, I think that's it's kind of cool to try. I was gonna say. Um, Vox.com, Vox Media, is that right? The newspaper Vox. Uh, I think Scott Kellum did some work and they do kind of a JavaScript layout thing, or at least they did at one point. So that might be something to to look into. Um, mm. I'll, I'll Google around for Vox.com layout things. Anyway, that's uh, that's that. Cool. Yeah, you got to finalize this guide, David. Yeah. All right. Addy, thank you so much for coming uh, over to Shop Talk. We really appreciate it. Uh, Before you go, how can people follow you if they're not following you already? And then how can people give you money? And what's one thing you'd like to plug before you go? So you can follow me at Addy Osmani on Twitter or plus Addy Osmani on Google Plus. Um, You can also follow me on my site, AddyOsmani.com. If people would like to donate money, you Definitely don't have to do that. Instead, please, you know, just just work on PRs or contributions to open source on a project that you use and love and find useful. Well, that's great. That's very altruistic. Thanks, Addy. We really appreciate it and keep up the good work over at uh, Google and Chrome and DevTools. We really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you, listener, dear listener, for downloading this and your podcatcher of choice. Be sure to rate us up, and that's how people find out about the show. We really uh, depend on that. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for all the updates. And uh, we don't really post that much, so we won't bother you too much. And if you need a new job, if you Ah, man, if uh, if your job is grinding your gears, uh, go over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a new one today. And Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Well, just thanks again to onemonth.com slash shoptalk and frontendsummit.com, shoptalkshow.com. <laughs>